you have a Bible at home and in here, uh, if you would take that out right now, we're going to resume where we left off last week, which is in Genesis. We're in Genesis 46. We're going to cover verses 5 through 27. And while you're turning there, and I really do want you to turn there, uh, this is a text, you've you got to kind of see it in front of you, okay? So I encourage you at home, here in this room, uh, give you time to pull it up. If you didn't bring a Bible, you could just uh, Google Genesis 46, uh, ESV is what we'll read from. Again, you'll want to have it in front of you. And while you're doing that, l- let me just uh, share with you a thought that has been on my mind really all weekend, is how nice it is to see faces out here. Uh, I have not done this uh, preaching thing in front of people, aside from last night, in over six months. Uh, This room is empty, you know, and and it's just so nice that we gather together uh, as his church and to actually see people uh, in person. And it's a great joy. Uh, It brings joy to my heart uh, to, to see that. And so amen, right? All right, so Genesis 46, let me grab my Bible here. Again, I'm reading from the ESV. If you would, please stand as we honor God at the hearing of his word. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. And the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamuel. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yab, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sirid, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. Verse 16. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esben, Eri, Arodi, and Erali. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, and Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, And these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. 
And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Beker, and Ashbel, uh, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, uh, Rosh, uh, Mupin, Hupin, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Husham, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, uh, Guni, Jezer, and Shillam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Thank you. You may have a seat. So once again, uh, we're in one of those passages filled with uh, a number of names that we don't necessarily recognize, a bunch of numbers that we're not sure if there's significance with them. And we may have a, a temptation to just skip over this section as, as we read through the scriptures. And as we even preach here, we, we might have a tendency to just say, well, there's really nothing in here for us. Let's just jump over this portion of scripture. Well, my first point right out the gate here is these people are significant. They are. And, and in my prep time, one of the things I like to do is I'll listen to uh, other preachers uh, handle the text. And especially one like this, I want to see how they're pronouncing those names. I want to listen and kind of get an idea how I ought to say them. And the reality is that there's different ways to pronounce, pronunciate them, or, you know, pronunciate them. So I... I did the best I could, you know, uh, but some of you maybe you know, Hebrew scholars would say, yeah, you messed up that one. I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did. But a lot of preachers, what they would do is they would start reading Genesis 46, maybe in verse 1 or in verse 5, and, and then when they got to verse 8, they would say, and then we see a bunch of names listed there, and let's drop down to verse 26. And, and it just, it saddened my heart a little bit. Because I think we ought to struggle through trying to pronounce it. Who are these people? Like, I, I ought to at least give lip service and read them and say them here today. Because the reality is, God said, I'm going to draw a people group unto myself. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Well, guess what? These are those people. That's who they are. And so if they're significant to God then they should be significant to us as well. In fact, as I was reading through uh, the list of names, one, one kind of jumped out to me. It's Kohath in verse 11. And I was thinking, ooh, this would be a, a good time for me to tell my Kohath story. And you're probably like, you, you got a Kohath story? I do. I do. But I ended up editing it out because I think the Lord took the sermon in a different direction. So I have to save my Kohath story for another day. But the reality is, Kohath is not just mentioned here. And the people that came after him known as the Kohathites. They're all throughout the Old Testament. So we ought to know who he is. Okay? So let, let's go back, though, to verse 5, because I kind of jumped ahead. So where are we at in Genesis? Maybe you weren't here last week, and you're kind of like, hey, Mike, I need to get filled in a little bit. Okay, so Joseph is in Egypt. 
All right, he, he's revealed himself to his brothers. Uh, he, he, wants, he wants dad now to know, Jacob, who's back in Canaan, wants him to know he's still alive, and he, and he wants Jacob and all the family to come out to Egypt. And so does Pharaoh. Pharaoh wants this as well. And so Jacob here, you know, what, from his perspective, he thought his dear son was dead. He finds out not only that he's alive, but he's risen to great power in Egypt. And so they set out from Canaan, and they have a little short pit stop there in Beersheba. And that's what we looked at last week. But this is the journey that they are making for this great family reunion, which is coming up later in the chapter. Jacob is going to see his beloved son, who he hasn't seen in over 22 years. And so this is no small caravan of people that are traveling. You got Jacob, you got his sons, their wives, their kids, even some grandkids. You got livestock and wagons all on this long journey. And if you think it's hard organizing a, a two-week vacation with your immediate family, try being Jacob. He's like 130 years old at this point. He's not going on a vacation. He's moving. He's moving with everybody and everything hundreds of miles away, little kids in tow. And so you got this crazy cavalcade of kids, cargo, camels, and cattle. And yes, I like alliteration. On the road to Egypt. So this is no small trip here. So who's actually on the journey? Who, who's, who's coming along? And that's what verses 8 through 25 lay out for us. And I want to not just read those, but I want to kind of break it down a little bit. I want to spend some time in these verses. And so if you have your Bible in front of you, maybe your Bible is laid out like mine where there's, there's four paragraphs. Those verses I mentioned, 8 through 25, are, are laid out in four paragraphs. Not every Bible does this, but some do. And I, I happen to have one in front of me that does. If yours does that, it's really helpful. You know why? Because Moses, who wrote this, he arranges the, the descendants and he categorizes them by the four women who gave birth to them. Okay? So you have the wives. You got Leah and Rachel. Then you got the two concubines, Zilpah and Bilhah. And so I have a graphic that I'll put up on the screen, and you can see at home. And this will kind of just help us see what's going on here. This is Jacob's family. You got the four women and then the 12 sons of Jacob. And that's how they're broke down. And since I thought graphics are kind of helpful in, in, in this situation, uh, I, in order for me to understand what was going on, I had to uh, print this out and kind of color code the names just to see what am I looking at. And, and I found it to be helpful. So then I thought, why not share it with you guys? So let's go ahead and show that on the screen. So now don't be scared. This looks very complicated. Let me, let me see if I can break it down for you. But it, I think it'll help us understand what's happening. So you see the four paragraphs there. Jacob, uh, he's, he's at the top there in the color burgundy. Okay. Then in pink, one in each paragraph, these are the mothers. Leah, Zilpah, Rachel, and Bilhah in that order. The green names are Jacob's children. His 12 sons including Dinah, his daughter. The yellow are, are Jacob's grandchildren. You have 52 in all, and there's one who's a female there, Sarah, right there on the far right side in the second paragraph. Interesting thing about, about Sarah 
We won't go into it because it gets complicated. But the blue are the, the, the four great-grandchildren, and you can see them listed. And then, and then you have Ur and Onan that I have there in black and white uh, because the text tells us they, they died in Canaan. Okay, we covered that in Genesis 38. And so obviously they did not make the trip. But at the end of each paragraph, you have a number that shows who did. And you see in the first paragraph is 33, then 16, 14, and then 7. And if you were to total those four numbers together, you get the number 70. So yes, I know no one told you there was going to be math this morning in the sermon, but we got to do some math, all right? And we'll see how significant that is in a minute. So having that breakdown in mind, let me reread for us verses 26 and 27. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So when I first read this, I first thought, well, wait a minute, how do we get from 66 to 70? And you got to look closely because at the beginning of verse 26, it says, all the persons belonging to Jacob. So it's not counting Jacob. So we add in Jacob, that's one. Then you add in Joseph, who's in Egypt, that's two. And his two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, that makes up the four. So that's how we're getting from 66 to 70, okay? Now, let's say, you know, you want to you get some, some additional verses that would, that would help confirm that 70 is indeed the number. And Scripture should be consistent. So you, so you decide, well, where else does, does this number 70 appear in terms of the descendants of Jacob? You just have to go a few pages uh, forward in your Bible to Exodus 1. Maybe it's four or five pages. I would encourage you to turn there. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy as well. But let's look at Exodus. It's the closest one. And I want to read Exodus 1, 1 through 5. I'll let you get there. Here, Bible pages uh, flipping. That's good. All right, Exodus 1, 1 says this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Okay, so that's good corroborating evidence there. The number is 70. Let's say you wanted to, to, to continue with this exercise, but this time you go all the way to the New Testament. Flip in your Bible again. You need to see it, Acts chapter 7. If you'll go there, what's happening in Acts 7, I think Acts 7 is like one of my favorite chapters because I've always been kind of a Cliff Notes kind of guy. Like, I, I like summaries, like a synopsis. And what's, what this guy Stephen does, he's delivering basically a sermon. And he walks us, like, through the entire Old Testament, hitting all the highlights along the way. That's Acts chapter 7. And so let me just read to you verses 11 through 15. This is Stephen speaking. Now, there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers 
could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. We covered all that. Here's verse 14. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. Uh-oh. Seems like we have a discrepancy here, if not a flat-out contradiction. Why in the world does Stephen say 75? Now, I am, I am intentionally introducing this challenge to us for a couple of reasons. One, we need to know that we can trust our Bibles. We need to know that. See, if you're a student of God's Word and you, you're, you're faithfully reading through and you're studying like a good Berean, and you see, okay, yeah, Genesis 46, 70 descendants, Exodus 1, yep, 70. And then you find yourself in the book of Acts, and you see, see Stephen say 75. See, in that moment, you ought not just plow ahead thinking, well, Moses, who, who, who wrote the Pentateuch, yeah, he, he, he got the number wrong. Or, or Stephen misspoke. Uh, it says that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in that same passage there. So, you know, what he said is, is spirit-inspired. You know, so did, did Stephen miss, misspeak? Did Luke possibly record it wrong? Right, he's the author of Acts. See, if those things enter our mind and we just say, yeah, there must be a mistake in the scriptures, and we just go ahead, you know, if we believe that that can and does happen, then the scriptures are broken, and so is our trust in them. So we've got to know what we're reading we can trust. I mean, if you believe that Jesus died on that cross for your sins and that by faith and repentance you can have eternal life through what God has done in Jesus Christ, where do we get that information? We get it from the Bible. And so we should be able to trust all of it. So that's the first reason. The second reason that I bring this up is this is one of those rather well-known uh, supposed Bible uh, contradictions that skeptics will, will point to. So say you uh, decide, you know what, I'm, I'm going to step out of my comfort zone. Uh, I'm going I'm to be uh, an ambassador for Christ, and I'm going to share my faith. I'm going to witness to somebody. And, and you, you do it by quoting the scriptures, except you stumble upon Mr. or Mrs. Skeptic, and they got this one locked and loaded. They're ready. Genesis 46, Acts 7, 70, 75. What say you, Christian? This happens. They got these out of their back pocket. And what they're attend attempting to do is to undermine both the veracity of the scriptures as well as your own Christian witness. And so, for one, we need to know that these are out there. All right, that, that's one. And the Bible tells us that we ought to be able to provide an answer for anyone who asks us about the hope that is within us. But granted, you're not going to have the answer to everything. Nobody does. So, a valid answer actually sometimes is, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I can't answer that for you. Let, can I do a little research? Give me a little time to look into it. Can I get your email, your phone number, and I'll, I'll get back to you on it. That's completely acceptable. But if we can come with an answer, I would argue that's better, right? So, so let's use this one. Let's do it. Let, let's, let's see if we can resolve this and see if we can reconcile those two numbers. 
how many people entered Egypt? So based upon the the content of, of Stephen's sermon, I think there's one thing that is abundantly obvious. This dude knows the Old Testament. He does. You know, he... He's, he's, he's citing all sorts of things. He's very familiar with the Old Testament. So didn't he read Genesis 46 and Exodus 1? Undoubtedly, he did. But here's the other thing you need to know, and it's not so obvious. Stephen, the name Stephanos, Greek. Stephen was known as a Hellenist. What is a Hellenist, you ask? That would be a Greek-speaking Jew. So Stephen is going to be more familiar, not with the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, but the Greek translation of it. And that is something called the Septuagint. That may be a new word for you. The Septuagint is basically the Old Testament, but not in Hebrew. It's been translated to Greek. And this is the, the, the proliferation of, of, of the Septuagint in the first century was widespread. They read it. They quoted it. You'll see it in your Bible. If you have a study Bible and you see like LXX, uh, the Roman numerals, and that's a hint for later. If you see that, that that's, they're quoting the Septuagint there. Okay, So it, it's, it's very, it was very popular at the time. And I've come to the conclusion that's what Stephen was reading. And that's why he said what he said in Acts 7. So let's do this. Let's read what Stephen would have read in that first century We'll go back, we'll look at those same verses, 26 and 27, but this time in the Septuagint. And you'll notice, verse 26, very similar. Verse 27, a little bit different. Let me read it to you. And all the souls that came with Jacob into Egypt, who came out of his loins, besides the wives of the sons of Jacob, even all the souls were 66. So we have consistency there between the Hebrew and the Greek. Verse 27, and the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in the land of Egypt, were nine souls. Hmm. All the souls of the house of Jacob who came with Joseph into Egypt were 75 souls. There it is. There's the 75. That's what Stephen was reading. That's where he got the number. So, so what do we have here? We have some new information not necessarily contradictory information, just new. And so then the question becomes, all right, who are these people? You know, and, and you can read all the, the, the commentaries that you want. People are divided. They don't know. This could have been kids that Joseph had beyond Manasseh and Ephraim. This could even have been Manasseh and Ephraim's kids because the term sons could be used for sons or grandsons, and it gets way complicated. But, so people are not uh, exactly sure, but that's what the Septuagint says. So what we have is we have agreement on the 66, and we said the Hebrew added Jacob, Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim, right? The Greek, they don't count those four to the 66. They count an additional nine from the line of Joseph. 66 plus 9 equals 75. So you might ask, well, which is it? Is it 70 or is it 75? Well, you know what the answer to that is? It depends. It depends. Do we count Jacob? Do we not count Jacob? Is Joseph counted in the 66 or not? What about Joseph's offspring? Is that number 2 or is that number 9? Now, at this point, we are deep in the weeds, all right, I know this is very technical. I, I get it, okay? We'll get practical in a, in a few minutes. But I do think that this is important. 
And I may have lost some of you, so let me attempt to sum up what I'm saying here. I'm going to rescue us from the self-inflicted dilemma that I put us in, all right? The Hebrew says 70 in multiple places, and we can trust that number. At the same time, Stephen didn't get it wrong, and Luke recorded him accurately. Stephen most likely drew his information from the Septuagint to arrive at the number 75, which does nothing to impugn the integrity of the Bible. But having said that, numbers in the Bible are not always literal. Okay, Sometimes they're symbolic or, or they're representative of something. And the number 70 is very significant. It's one of those numbers you see throughout the Bible. And it's comprised of, of two other numbers. Seven, the number for perfection, as in seven days of the week. And the number 10, for the number for completion uh, or, or completeness, as in the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments. And so by using the number 70 here, the author is saying to us, it was everyone. It was, it was perfectly complete, the number of descendants who came from Canaan to Egypt. That's really what is being said there. Think about the number 70 in the Bible. Let me just share a few of these with you. Genesis 10, the split there, the number of nations. How many nations? 70. Genesis 50, when Jacob died, the Egyptians wept for 70 days. Now, now, do you think that, you know, on day 70, like, there's crying happening. It's like, oh, you know, Jacob is, is, is past. There's weeping. But then it's like day 71, be like, you can't cry over Jacob now because we've exceeded day 70. Like, it's, it's symbolic, okay? It's representative. Numbers 11, Moses gathers together how many elders? 70. Jeremiah 29. The, the Babylonian captivity lasted for how long? You guessed it, 70 years. The 70 weeks of Daniel. The psalmist, I think it's Psalm 90. The psalmist says something very interesting. He says the, the typical lifespan of a person is 70 years. Obviously, some live longer than 70, but some live shorter. How many disciples did Jesus send out? 70. Jesus says, how many times should you forgive your brother? Seven? Nope. Seven times 70. Even the Septuagint, the Septuagint, the, the prefix sept. I remember from elementary school, the septagon is a shape with seven sides. How many translators? Seventy. See, this, this, is, this is amazing, really, when you think about the symbolic nature of the number 70. And then this guy, I stumbled upon this guy, never heard of him before, Robert Alter. Uh, he's a Hebrew scholar. I was digging this guy. I read some of his stuff. Like, this guy is sharp. And this quote just really just was like, great, I, I want to share it with you. So this is what he says. He says, the traditional commentators resort to interpretive acrobatics in order to make the list come out to exactly 70 debating as to whether Jacob himself should be included in the count, whether Joseph and his two sons are part of the sum, and so forth. Pretty much what we've been doing for the last 10 minutes here. In fact, the insistence on 70 at the end of the list vividly illustrates the biblical use of numbers as symbolic approximations rather than precise measures. 70 is a fullness, 
a large round number, seven times sacred seven, or ten, excuse me, ten times sacred seven. And its use here indicates that Jacob, once a solitary fugitive, has grown to a grand family, the nucleus of a nation. That is good. That is really good. So I, I read that on Wednesday, if memory serves. And at the same time, I was in my office. It's right over there beyond that, that little door. And I read it, and I was like, I, I got I to share that for sure. And then I think it was lunchtime. I go into the kitchen. I always stand at the counter eating my, my fruits and vegetables. And, you know, and, and I'm flipping through Twitter, and uh, I just want to see what's new in the world. You know, I feel like getting depressed, basically. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I'm flipping through there, and I see some breaking news that caught my eye. And some of you know about this. On Wednesday, big news in the Big Ten Conference. Right, this is Penn State Nation. I get it. All right, I see. I saw a Penn State face mask, a Penn State jacket coming in here. I'm from New York. It didn't take me long to realize I was in Penn State country when I moved here to Harrisburg. Okay, but Lord willing, it looks like we're going to have some football in the Big Ten Conference this year. I paused in case anybody wanted to amen. You can amen in your heart and be spiritual. It's okay. It's all right. I get it. But here, let's do this. Imagine for a second that you are an expert on the history of the Big Ten Conference. You may not be, but let's just say you are for the for sake of my illustration here. And someone comes to you, a friend comes to you and says, hey, so you know a lot about the Big Ten Conference. Uh, did the conference get its name because that's the number of teams in the conference? And because you're an expert, the, the answer that you would give would go something like this. Well, yes, but no, kind of, sort of. That would be your answer. And, and they would be like, well, I just, I just asked you a simple, straightforward question. Can't you give me a simple, straightforward answer? And the answer to that is, no, you can't. Because what you would need to do is you would need to take them back more than 100 years, back to 1895, back when the conference was known as the Intercollegiate Conference of Faculty Representatives. Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? The good old ICFR. Not as catchy as the Big Ten, right? And the founding members of the, of, of the conference were these schools. University of uh, Chicago, Michigan, Minnesota, Illinois, Northwestern, Purdue, Wisconsin. Seven schools. Then Iowa and Indiana joined the conference, and it was known as the Big Nine. Then in 1908, Michigan was kicked out for rules violations. Bad Wolverines. So then, we got an amen. So then there were only eight schools in the conference. Then in 1912, Ohio State, boo, they joined the conference back up to nine. A few years later, after a 10-year hiatus, Michigan, they serve their penance. They're allowed back in to the Big Ten. And the name Big Ten at that point stuck. And it was known as the Big Ten from that point forward. So that's the answer to your friend's question. Ten schools, hence the name, the Big Ten Conference. But as Lee Corso, a college football analyst, would say, not so fast, my friend. There's more to the story. Hold on. We're not done. Because you're an expert, remember. You're walking them through this. 1946, 
Chicago withdrew from the conference and went back to being referred to as the Big Nine. Four years later, Michigan State joins, and the term Big Ten was reinstituted. See, I told you you were an expert. And, and for 40 years, there are 10 teams in the Big Ten Conference, and all's right with the world. Then in 1990, Penn State comes along and messes the whole thing up. They do. Penn State joins the Big Ten, so you now have how many teams? 11. Therefore, your friend would be like, okay, I, I see you working. I'm tracking with you here. So now the conference became the Big 11. You would think so, but no, it's not. They remain the Big 10. And your friend at this point is thoroughly confused, and they're like, all right, so how many teams are in the Big Ten today? Answer, 14. Like, how do you make sense of this? But some of you are really Big Ten experts. You, you truly are. And you're saying, Mike, don't forget about those two affiliate schools, Johns Hopkins and Notre Dame. Notre Dame hockey in the Big Ten. And so you might say, well, well then Notre Dame football, they're playing, right? They're in the Big Ten. Nope. Due to COVID, they're in the ACC. Thank you, COVID, for adding to the confusion of what was already a confusing situation. And is that not our year this year? Confusion marks 2020. Left is right, up is down. I, I don't know anything anymore, right? So what's the point here? The point is this. This confusion stems from information that, that has been gathered together in just the last 100 years, a little over 100 years, of football in a portion of the United States of America, basically the Northeast. But when we're trying to figure out, was the number 70 or 75, we're dealing with data, fragmented data at that. Sometimes you get a little piece of parchment you're working with that, that's thousands and thousands of years old, it's not from the northeast of America. It's from the other side of the globe. You think this is easy? It's not. I just showed you how complicated a stupid football conference can be. And we're going to try to figure out this thing from thousands of years ago? Life is confusing. And for the skeptic, you know what they want? They want everything to be neat and clean. And it's just not. It just isn't. And let me give you this uh, little tidbit here. If you ever get into one of these conversations, and you're, now that you're, you're equipped, you know something about Genesis 46 and Acts 7, and you start engaging with somebody on, on these matters, and you end up deep in the weeds, and you're talking about manuscript evidence and, you know, the Septuagint and Masoretic text, and, you know, you're dealing with all this. Here's what, here's what you can do. Just, just say, let's just stop. Let's just hold the phone here, okay? Uh, we're, we're way in the details here. Let's just back up for a second, okay, Mr. and Mrs. Skeptic. Is this really what this is all about? I mean, really? Is it, are, are you willing to risk your soul over a 70 versus 75 discrepancy? I mean, you're going you're gonna to dangle your soul over the pit of hell based upon the number of Jews who entered Egypt thousands of years ago? I mean, you're going you're gonna to spend an eternity in hell saying, I just didn't know if the number was 70 or 75. Therefore, I rejected Jesus and his kind offer of forgiveness. See, the reality is there's something more going on than textual criticism. That's a sermon for another day. So I know this has been very technical. I get it, okay? 
for the remainder of our time, I want us to get extremely practical. So again, let, let's step back from, from the, the, the deepness of, of Genesis 46 and just kind of look at what's going on. Here's what's happening. This long trek is taking place where the, the, you've got a caravan of people and, and animals and goods and everything just coming from, from Canaan to Egypt for what? This great family reunion that is about to take place. And notice the kindness of God to pull all the strings to make this happen. God wants this reunion to happen. You say, how, how do you know that, Mike? Well, look at what's already happened. God preserves Joseph through the trials and tribulations of his life, and they are many, for 22 years. God kept him alive during all of that. God allows Jacob to live long enough to see his boy Joseph. Notice what God does with, with Pharaoh. God, God has Pharaoh show favor to this family. You know, Pharaoh could have just been like, all right, Joseph, yeah, that's a cute story with your family. I'm happy for you. But I got Pharaoh things to do, and I don't have time to concern myself with that. That's not what he does. He's like, he's like this is great, man. We got to get Jacob and the family. We got to get him out of there. I'm going to send some wagons. We're going to give him the choices of land here in Egypt. We got to make this happen. Well, God is the one who turns the heart of the Pharaoh to extend that kindness to Jacob and his family. And just last weekend, what did we look at? Pastor Ben showed us that, that Jacob, on the journey there, stops in Beersheba. God appears to him in a vision. And what does he say? Don't be afraid. Well, why did he say that? He must have been afraid. And he's like, don't, don't be afraid. Go. I'm going to go with you. It's okay. And I'm going to bring you back. God's reassuring Jacob. And last one, not to mention, this whole thing is actually a fulfillment of God's own prophecy that he told to Abram many years prior. Genesis 15. We have it up on the screen. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So God wants to see this family reunion take place, and it's going to be glorious. I don't want to steal the thunder from next week, but I will simply say this. You know what we're going to see? We're going to see a, a reuniting. We're going to see hugs and people falling on necks and weeping. And you got the whole family there. Joseph's going to see his nieces and nephews for the first time. They're going to get to see Uncle Joey, which they probably won't call him Uncle Joey. He's kind of important, right? But they get to meet him. He's this big shot in Egypt exciting stuff that's happening. Hugs, kisses, tears, falling on necks. And so I simply want to say this. God sees the value of being present with one another. Sometimes you just got to be close in, in, in physicality terms, just physically close to people, close enough to reach out and touch them, to hug them, to put your arm around somebody, to shake their hand, to hold their hand. You can't do those things when you're separated by distance. This is why long distance relationships rarely work. Because there's something that's known as the ministry of presence. I learned about this a couple years ago. Hadn't heard the term before, but I remember the day I did. It was here at the church very early in the morning. Uh, maybe it's like 7.30 or so in the morning. It was just Pastor Mike and myself here. 
and uh, phone rings. And a woman calls up, and we don't know her, and, and she doesn't know us. Uh, she called up because her son, the day before, had died. And again, if my memory serves correctly, uh, he had drowned, her little boy drowned in the Susquehanna River. And so she just Googles local churches some morning, calls up Living Water, gets Pastor Mike on the phone, and he comes to my office, and he knocks on the door. He says, come on, Mike, let's go for a ride. And he fills me in on the details along the way. And he told me about the ministry of presence. We're going to go visit this woman. And she's heartbroken, obviously. And I remember he, he said, you know, I, I, could, I could hear her story over the phone. You know, I could, I could, I could weep with her over the phone. I, I could pray for her over the phone. But it's not the same as being with them physically in her home with her. So we arrive at her place, I believe it was down in Allison Hill, and we go in, and she tells us the story, and it's tragic, of course, it's heartbreaking. She tells us what happened, and, you know, we hold her hand, and, you know, we put our arm around her. You know, this is pre-COVID, back in the good old days when you can do that kind of stuff, right? And so we're there with her, and we pray for the ministry of presence in action. And one little side note, I remember walking in there, and there was this beeping sound. And I noticed it was, it was the smoke alarm, like the battery was going dead. So there's this annoying chirping sound happening during our, our meeting. And we said, yeah, can, we, can we go to the store and, and buy you a battery and put it in? Can we, can we do that small thing for you? And see, that, you know, even something small like that, that, that couldn't have been done unless we were there, right? We got to be there. We got to hear the annoying chirping. We got to see, oh, it's a smoke alarm. We got to go to the store physically, buy the battery, come in, put it in. Even something like that. You can't do that from the offices here at Living Water. You got to be there. And I'm glad we went and I learned about the ministry of presence. See, why are we struggling so much right now? COVID-19 is ravaging us. Why are we struggling relationally? We are. Because we're, we, even just in interpersonal you know, interactions, have you had this awkward encounter yet where you, you see somebody, you haven't seen them in a long time, and you're like, hey, and you, you go in for the hug, you know, handshake. Uh, what, what I, you know, we don't know what to do. Why? Because we're built to just, man, just how you doing, man? Uh, hug them. Right? But we're struggling because this is how God made us. And see, just imagine this family reunion coming up. All right? In Genesis 46, imagine that taking place in a COVID-19 world. Okay? You know, Joseph's there in Egypt. He's looking for dear old dad. Here comes the caravan of people. Jacob, father. You know, he runs out to meet him. But he stops six feet short. And he says, wait a minute. Have you had a Q-tip jammed up your nose yet? I, I, need a, I need a negative test because otherwise we got to keep the down. I'm, I'm important. I can't quarantine for two weeks, right? There's a, there's a famine going on. Absurd. And that's the world we live in. Granted, we, we got to do what we got to do. And I, I recognize I'm saying this with people at home. Uh, I, so here's what I would like to say. I wrote it down. I want to make sure I get it right. People who watch from home, there's good reason for it. There are health factors 
that must be taken into account. And I get that. I honestly do. I'm not trying to pressure anybody. I, I, I don't want to guilt anybody. Um, I, I honestly do get it. I simply want all of us to agree with the point that it's better when we're together, right? Because my fear is, you know what my fear is? It's actually this. You know, in business, uh, I think this is true. In business, there's some companies that when they sent people home to have them do work from home, they found that that's kind of like a better business model. You know, there was benefits to that. They're like, we're just going to keep on doing that. I don't want that to invade God's church. I don't think that should be how it's done. Because I'm afraid. Some people were like, I'm not going to, to, why do I got to go to the building? I'm going to sit at home, watch Pastor Mike preach and the worship team. I can do that in my pajamas on the couch. Yes, you can, but should you? What's better? It's better when we're together. Fellowship. Amen. Amen. And, you know, this, I mean, this, this point just preaches itself. I mean, we have not been here for the last three weeks. We missed the last two weeks because we had our own COVID situation to deal with here. So I just want to say, how nice is it to see all of you, to be here? I was hugging people and handshakes, all of that. So, so I will selfishly say this. If you want to interact with me, I'm good with everything from six feet apart waving to a full-on hug. You know, if you're a female, we do the side hug. That's the Christian thing. You know, handshake, give me a pound, fist bump, elbow, toe tap like kid and play. I'll do any of that, okay? I'm good with it all, all right? Very selfishly said that so I can avoid those awkward interactions that we have. But this is God's church called and collected, gathered together to worship him. See, we talk a lot about the vertical. you got to have a relationship with the Lord. True, you do. Salvation's like a turnstile, one at a time, baby. you got to come to the Lord on your own. You don't ride the coattails of others to come to Christ. You must do that on your own. But once you do, guess what? You're part of the family. There's such a doctrine, it's called adoption. You're adopted in. Y'all are my brothers and sisters, not by blood. Some of us, we don't even look anything alike, but you're my brother. You're my sister. And, and likewise with each other, because the Bible talks a lot about the one another's. Let me just give you one of them, okay? It's Hebrews chapter 10. Hear these words. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So to close, I want to give you four just real practical examples of things that I've seen when we are gathered together here as a church, the benefit of being physically together. I've kind of categorized them as a, as a parental benefit, a financial benefit, an inspirational benefit, and a spiritual benefit. Let me run through these real quick. The parental benefit. Me as a father, I'm deficient. Me on my own, not good enough. I need my wife. But in addition to her, you know who else I need? I need you guys. I need you guys. I need to come to church and see families like the Judy family, like Darren and Allison Judy, who just love their kids. They're so patient with them. I see it. 
I'm like big brother watching, right? I see it, okay? And, and then I'm like, man, I'm so short-fused with my kids. I'm so impatient with them. And they're modeling something that I can learn from. And they're not doing it in any kind of showy kind of way. This is who they are. They're they're rock stars, Darren and Allison. And we need to be together. And I benefit as a parent when we are. But that does not happen if we're not gathered here together. They can do that all they want in their home. I'm not privy to it. I don't get the benefit. I said there's a financial benefit. What do I mean by that? Well, in our church, there's a, there's a lot of single moms that are struggling financially. I know it. I know it. And, and, and they're, they're, you know, they're part of a small group that meets on a Thursday night, and they, you know, and they share their prayer request amongst the group there. And, and there just so happens to be a family who's very generous and, and has the financial means. And you know what they do? They, they, they scratch a check for two grand, and because they want to remain anonymous, they give it to me to pass on to her. This stuff happens time and time again. And it's not to lift up that family. I would never mention them by name. That would be, they, would, they would be horrified if I did. This is not about pointing to any the Judies or anyone else. This is to glorify God. So, of course, I thank them as they hand me that check. I'm like, yeah, thank you. But you know what I'm really doing? I'm praising the Lord for his church functioning as it ought to. But it doesn't happen if that small group's not meeting on Thursday night. That woman struggles on her own. Third, inspirational benefit. What do I mean by that? Well, it's getting played out right now, okay? Preaching is weird. Okay, I think it's weird. Uh, this is like a monologue. I'm doing all the talking. There's a little interaction, but it's mostly one way. And, you know, in other forms of communication, like conversation, there's like an interaction. There's a back and forth, right? I talk, you talk. There's head nodding. There's, mm-hmm. You know, that happens. Preaching, you don't know what's going on. Sometimes you're just looking out there, and it's just a bunch of blank faces. Uh, I've seen people yawning, sleeping, daydreaming. I don't know. Like, are y'all with me or are you not? But when somebody says, amen, or starts clapping, I'm like, yes, you got it. You, 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 you get what I'm saying. Not that I want to be boosted up. I'm just saying it just gives me fire. It gives me encouragement because it's more like a conversation. Like you're actually, that's why I see heads nodding. That, I'm like, okay, you get what I'm saying. But that doesn't happen when we're watching at home on the live stream. You could be saying amen at home. I just can't hear it. You know, it's just a reality. It's better when we're here. That's all I'm saying. Lastly, a spiritual benefit. This one's huge. This one, I I am going to name a particular individual who I love very much. I'm so glad that she's part of my life. She encourages me. She inspires me. She's a fellow staff member. Her name is Grace Rodriguez. If you don't know who Grace is, you need to get to know Grace. Grace is awesome. She, she's our, what is she? She's our children's ministry volunteer coordinator. Reality is, Grace does a whole lot more than that. She's been here every Saturday night helping us with greeting. Grace is awesome, okay? She pops into my office a couple times this week. One day in particular, I was in kind of a, just a very average mood. I was just like, you know, you, know, you have those days, whatever, you know. If I was an emoji, I'd be meh. That's kind of, that's kind of, I was in a meh mood. Well, Grace is anything but meh. 
Grace is high energy, cheerful, joyful, never depressed. And she's always talking about the Lord, either with her mouth or with her T-shirts, her, her face mask. You know, I wear the, the blue paper, you know, OR mask, like I'm about to go operate on somebody. She's got this nice purple felt one that says Jesus saves on it. That's grace, okay? So she stops in. And she's telling me this story. I can't even remember what it was. I've been racking my brain. But she starts getting all animated. Now, somebody said something like, oh, you know, that, that was kind of lucky. And she goes, no, that was the Lord. And that's how she does it. That was the Lord. She's got this finger, you know. It's like small, but it's very powerful. And, and I'm seated, and she's like standing over me saying this. And I was like, Grace, uh, I'm, I'm a little scared. Uh, I love your zeal, sister. I'm just a little frightened right now. But, you know, th this is happening. And, and in the course of this conversation, I start getting in the spirit. I start getting animated. We're having this great conversation. Why? Because she regularly provides a spiritual benefit to me. And not only me, to many of you. Many of you know, my impression with that thing, that's dead on. It was the Lord. That's how she does it. Like that, she, she's more contagious than the coronavirus. I can't believe I just said that. You, we need people like this in our lives. I'm kind of lukewarm sometimes. I need that. She took me from meh to, I got to get back to preparing this sermon and fired me up. But that wouldn't have happened if we were working from home. Just wouldn't. The importance of presence can't see the finger over the phone. Just doesn't work, okay? Gotta be there. So I'll say this. Yes, it is God with us, but it is us with us, us with one another. It's how God set it up. He reconciles us to himself, then he reconciles us to one another. And we, as the family of God, when we gather together in a family reunion like this, he is glorified, we are edified when the church is behaving like the church. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's all I can say is thank you for allowing this gathering to take place. You got all these people up, whether they're here in this room or they're watching at home. You got us up. You got us uh, in front of a computer screen or into a room where we can sing praises to you. We can give uh, our offering to you. We can hear your word going forth. Uh, I pray it was received well. Lord, we, we need you, obviously, first and foremost, but we also need one another. I thank you for your church that you have established here in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I love my brothers and sisters here present and those at home. I hope they Receive my words uh, for the way that they were intended. Lord, will you help make that happen? Because sometimes I get misinterpreted, and I don't want that to happen. I want them to know that I love them, and I love everybody here. And we love you, Lord. Amen. Let's please.